On today's show, our guest is Adrian Skeggs. Adrian is the founding partner of Arrival Global, which is an augmented reality company that brings the fans into the game like never before. His current project is a natural fit for his background playing professional sport, coaching and mentoring for many years. Adrian played and coached professional rugby union for New South Wales, Queensland, and ultimately he represented Australia as a prop forward for the Wallabies. Adrian has exceptional relationship building skills with people operating at all levels within an organization. He has the unique ability to connect people on a national and global and even a local basis. His vast experience in professional sport has helped him to unlock the true value of relationships and the potential that they possess. I'm excited that this wallaby and master networker is here, so please help me in welcoming Adrian Skeggs. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Adrian. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast, mate. It's great to have you here. Awesome, mate. Awesome. Really looking forward to it. I'll have a good look at uh, the work you do, and I'm very impressed, and um, I certainly hope I can add value to the hobby. All right. I hope you're ready for this, because we start off all of our shows with a quick little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps warms us up a little bit, helps us calm down a bit too as well, and maybe for the people at home listening that know you, they'll learn something about you. So it's in no particular order, just pretty random. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Do you prefer cardio or weights these days? Cardio. First, speaking or writing? Oh, speaking. Tell me in one quick question, what's your best networking tip? Because we're going to get into that. What's the best one that you could give to me? Writing value, understanding the uniqueness, that I suppose, of the person you're meeting. Beautiful. Tell me, do you prefer the bush or the beach? Beach. The beach. What was your first car? Oh, geez, it was a, well, geez, a Ford Falcon way back then. Way back when. I bet you'd be worth like half a million bucks these days, right? If it's still together. Yeah, if it's still together. Did you drive it like you stole it or did you behave yourself like a good boy? I drove it as fast as good go, which wasn't that fast. <laughs> I remember the feeling well. <laughs> Tell me, are you old school or would you say you're a little bit new age? I think old school values, but uh, try and keep uh, an understanding of you know, the currency of engaging people in this. Beautifully said. Well put. And if you had... 10 minutes that you could go back in history and visit anybody, who would you go and visit and what would you say to them? Well, I met Nelson Della once, but I think what it for me is going back and sitting there and understanding, you know, he was amazing how he sort of carried himself for what he went through. It's spiteful. So for me, I think if we go back there and ask him, you know, uh, what was his why in life? Yeah, I think that would be a very good 10 minutes, that's for sure. I'd love to be a fly on a wall there, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for sharing that with us and just kicking off the show. People come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? I think the thing about every everyone has a story in life, and I think what happens is that storytelling is... And, and sharing experiences is the best way to get a, your point across. If, if you're talking about a business or anything like that, I think my thing is you can relate it to, relate it to a story or experience. The key is challenges and how you got over them. So for me, 
it's always being able to talk to people and understand through examples and through my that will consider this and how that how that happened or how that evolved. And I think from my point of view is it's usually around people. People will give you for me it's a tremendous I'm very well, well connected, but I think the key to all this is is basically when you're understanding about value of people, it's understanding about how they carry themselves and how they do things, which is their uniqueness, and obviously how they affect that value for yourself or, or the organisation you're in. Do you have a, a particular story that sticks out in your mind where you had to fully commit to those people and work with those people to achieve the outcomes that you were looking for? I think probably what I'd like to say is, is in a way, it's going back to my childhood. I think what, what I'd like, I think people would need to know is that, you know, coming from a small community of Lord Howe Island, I think for me, one of the things when my mother was ill when I was young and, and died, the community on the island sponsored me to go to the, to the Armanel School. And I think by doing that, I felt there was, I didn't understand what it was about because I was too young, but certainly what it did is gave me the footprint of life. The discipline I got wasn't right or wrong. It was just a discipline of how I carried myself. Mm-hmm. Because of the respect I got out of that thing was I've always acknowledged the fact of all, you know, and what the community did for me. So I think as a learning that comes out of that is obviously through community, you, know, you respect the values of that community and what it gave me. Very nice. And you discovered sport when you were at boarding school? Well, when, they, when I first got there, they, there was, I bumped into a guy there who was a famous wallaby, uh, John Hipple. He said, mate, you're too big to stand around. You know, you're not going to be working in a kitchen or anything, Steve. <laughs> So basically, yeah, so sports. So I think on the island, you know, just being active was a thing. We didn't have TV. So when I got to the school, uh, I just embraced it. And I think from my point of view, it's just a great way to get to know people. So I was nearly in every sport, sporting team at school and obviously continued on that in a bigger way when I left. Was rugby a big part of your of your teen years growing up or was that just something you discovered along the way? I discovered rugby because obviously when I was went, went to Armadale School, obviously I was a big guy, so I got involved in that. But I was I was in the first eleven cricket for five years, so for me cricket was the game. But I think what happened is that what I realised about rugby was is where it was played all around the world. So for me, it was just something where when I was young, it was borderless on what you could do with it. So for me, it was an exciting journey to go on, and and the camaraderie of it was pretty special. So I think from coming from the little island thing, it was just another community. And it sounds like you had a really good mentor, right? He was with you the whole time through school? Well, I think there's guys like John Hipwell was, but there was other people there, um, you know, guys like Ken McConville, these guys. I think what what they did was that they always kept the crossbar a little bit out of reach for me. They always wanted me to expect more because they got, you know, how I was challenged wasn't something I, I needed to be challenged all the time to change. And, and these guys sort of basically uh, always egged me on, always did things. So for me, it was, yeah, it was just getting the encouragement, but also being pushed a bit. And, uh, you know, I think in a way, it's not a bad thing to be pushed, but certainly in a way, I reached the challenges quite well. And obviously, the rest was history. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a dichotomy between pushing a kid too hard in sport and then letting them have a little bit of fun at the same time and taking it too seriously and whatnot. When was it that you realised that you actually had a knack for this game and you were really good at it? How, can you remember how old you were? Well I, well, I think when I was at school, the year 10, I got in the country schools and then suddenly I was playing New Zealand schools and Irish schools in two weeks in a row. And I, suddenly I was playing international rugby at school. But I think the, probably the telling point was in 1989 when I actually donned on the jersey for New South Wales against the British Lions at North Sydney Oval. I think it was my first rep game, but it was also the you know, it was just massive because they were just probably one of the biggest franchises in the world. And, uh, you know, it was an, an exciting game. But for me, the excitement was being part of something special and going to new dance floor that uh, I'd always dreamed of. Very nice. Were you getting paid to play footy then? No, no, no. I was a, uh-huh. those days I was a teacher and 
was teaching uh, phys ed over a school called Pittwater House here in, in Sydney, and then obviously over Queensland, I was, uh, I was teaching over a school called Churchy, England Church Grammar School. So, you know, as I think being professional in the daytime when you're doing, when you're carrying yourself in a workplace, that sort of rolled over into professional when you're actually training. There's a big, there's a big difference, I suppose, these days. That, you know, people talk about work ethic and that sort of stuff. But I just think it comes naturally if you want to play sport and then you're actually working during the day. It just rolls over. So I thought it was a good thing, you know. Whereas now there are a lot of these guys are professional sportsmen, so you know they do it a lot of downtime. But anyway, it's just a different world. When you were a teacher at school, were you the rugby coach? Well, I sort of, yeah, I, I sort of all gangled into it. They sort of looked at me and said, well, yeah, better get out there and uh, rough our boys up and this stuff. But we are, we are in a little school at Pitwater House, and, but they, I've certainly got them playing way above their weight and, and I was very proud of the guys, achieved some really cool things. But again, I think it was like when I was at school, I gave them an experience when I was at school where I took them out of their comfort zone and they responded. So for me, I was very proud of them. Very nice, very nice. And tell me about the progression from playing state rugby into getting selected for a national team. How was that progression? How long did it take you to get through those games and you're playing, you're doing trials and tryouts and all that sort of thing? You're under the pencil constantly. It must be a lot of pressure. I think at the end of the day, the higher you get up and represent rugby, it's faster and harder. But I think what it is is if you're consistent at time, uh, you've only got to wait for things to happen. And, and, yeah, there was an injury in the Wallabies at that stage, so I actually got a place on that. But for me, I think always being there, always being conscious of being reliable and always being fit and that sort of stuff, I think it was, it was yeah, the forefront of everything. But I think from the point of view, it's about trust. People trust. If they trust in your ability and trust in the person you are, and uh, then that's that what gets you that next level. Can you remember a shortcoming that you had? Were you, was your cardio weak or were you could have been stronger in tackling or something? Was there something that yeah, was no, holding was, you back? I was, well, I'm a big guy, so for me it was just about pace. I was never a, yeah. I think it was fit, it was fitness and stuff, but I don't think I was, yeah, in the day I would have played a lot more representing rugby if I was faster. But I, in those days it was a little bit more old school where you needed big guys, but certainly if I was a lot faster, I would have been rugby. Yeah, nice, nice. I, re- I remember um, I was in the army for a long time and there's a real balance between being lean and being really, really fast and being like a really strong athlete and then having to put a pack on and hump a pack for four or five weeks in the bush on operations or on exercise. There's a very, very big difference between actually going and doing it on game day and actually training for it. And I know that the training was always harder than what the actual operations were for us. Was that the same for you? Was the training harder than the actual games or were the games harder than the training? I think... Uh... I, I love training. So for me, I always love being, for me, one of that things is, is in my position, you don't, you have to be match fit to play the position I was. Whereas, yeah, you, you just can't go out there and train for three weeks and run on a pitch. So I thought I had to challenge myself all the time, but I certainly think that training, some of the training sessions we had were brutal, but they always tapered down to prior to games and that's the stuff when you got on game day, you're pretty fresh to go. So, you know, I was always conscious of the fact of my ability, but I was also conscious of the fact of my ability to deliver and, and that was around my fitness. And tell me about pulling on that Wallaby jersey, mate. That's pretty epic. Well, I do have a story uh, that goes all that and I think it's a pretty passionate story, but obviously, uh, you know, when I look back, where that little island gave me the opportunity to go to the Armadale School. And my mother died in those years gone by when I went to that school. What I did is I realised I wouldn't have that opportunity if I didn't go to the Armadale School. So when I actually played my first game against, we were on a tour and we are going through Canada on the way to France. And Canada, and um, I actually had a photo of my, my mother in one pocket and a photo of the island in the other pocket. So 
I think, you know, the reason that, that I look at it and, and such poor playing for the Wallabies uh, was fantastic, but I think my reasons for playing Wallabies was very relevant in regards to, and very honourable to the people that might have me there. What did it feel like to represent your country? It was amazing because you, you, you realise that the lineage of all the people that have played before, you realise that, you know, you're actually playing for your country and more importantly, I realised that I was playing for the island. So for me, I think just the sheer respect and the enormity of it, but also the, the honour, it was just an absolute privilege. So, uh, you know, it's just something I'll never, I'll never forget and it's part of my uh, legacy from you know, all those days now. One of my favourite parts of almost any sporting event is when, you know, when they have a, they make a big thing out of it and then they line everybody up and they sing the national anthems before they kick off and you see everybody lined up, they're linked arms, they're singing their, their country song and they look really, really super proud to be there. And it's, it's a big moment. It's a big moment to do those things. But as soon as all that fanfare finishes, it looks like, okay, that's good. We're going to compartmentalize that. That's out of the way. Now you're playing for your mates. Is that, was that your experience? Is that how it worked for you as well? Well, I think I think seeing the national anthem actually playing for your country it just it, it's uh, very euphoric. It takes you right out of the comfort zone. But you know, it's, it's the old thing of boots on, mind on. But and certainly, so for me, once that was over, you know, we just sort of get into it. Your mindset just get into the whole thing, or we've got to think. So I, you know, it is one of those. I suppose exactly how you described it. You know, it was just each moment in preparation for the game. The anthem was there. We moved on, and then suddenly we're into the game. And uh, you know, it was it was a bit very nervous. But I think for my, the nervous was, you know, again, trusting the people I was with and they trusted me. Yeah, it's very nice. Nicely put and well said as well. What would you say, you know, you, you play sport for a period in, in your life. That's a chapter in your life. And for me, I kind of, as I was researching you and before this podcast and, and seeing your background and stuff, I felt like I had a lot of comparisons and I could draw a lot of comparisons to what you did and to what I did in the military. It's the same sorts of feelings that I get. And it's a chapter in your life that lasts a period of time, but it stays with you forever. Can you highlight maybe one or two really big takeaways that have stayed with you for representing your country? I think the, the key to it is, is, is to me is to is be respectful of the moment, uh, understand the legacy of, uh, of the people you've represented, but more importantly, you know, while it was an honour, I think for me it's just to do is to how you share that and how you put that to people is that people don't understand what that's like. Mm. I think for me, it's uh, people turn around, oh, you're a wallaby, you're a wallaby, wallaby, what was that like? But I think what it is, it's just like anything. If you want to be a CEO of a major company, mm. you know, while it's very, very different, it's the journey, it's the, it's the challenges, it's getting yeah. over the challenges, and it's just keep rising and rising above. So, yeah, I think there's, um, for me, it was the resilience, it's the perseverance, it was the tenacity, all those things that really sort of got me there. And I, I think I totally are definitive about what they all mean to me. Have you taken them with you in your day-to-day life beyond sport? I oh, definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm a very, I'm certainly very tenacious. And, uh, and for me, as I say, my currency of business is people. And uh, for me, I'm always on to looking at, say, okay, how can I, you know, engage those right people? And obviously, when I engage those right people, it's great those right appropriate values. But again, going back and being mindful of how you know them. And if people are emotionally connected to you, well, you know, then you half the battle is won. Mm-hmm. I have some really terrific highlights from the military for myself and I, I carry those highlights with me and remember them, but I don't dwell upon them. I just like, that was such a, that was such a cool thing. And I remember uh, the very first time pulling on my pack and I had a flat jacket on, I had double front line ammunition and I was carrying rounds for the machine gun for my, for the gunner that was with me, pulled on the pack, 
We walked over, got into a Blackhawk and we're tack flying into a location on operations overseas. And I can just remember sitting on the edge of the helicopter as it was about to take off thinking, man, this is the exact reason why I joined the military. This is why I joined the army and here I am doing it for real on operations. It was a really exciting moment for me. And it's one that stayed with me for a long time. And there was a couple of poignant moments there in my career that I enjoyed that. Tell me, you must have had some really big moments like that playing sport and doing that for Australia. Can you remember one that sticks out in your mind? I don't think it's sort of one moment. I think it's, you know, you, you get the stage where when you, I went and played around the world. So sometimes it's about moments put together. And I think, you know, when you have to adapt to, you know, to a different lifestyle or different coaching method and all this stuff, at the end of the day, you've still got the ingredients of who you are. And the reason I say that, if you're yeah, living in South Africa, for example, I mean, they're very, very, you know, the basic education was very direct, whereas over here we're very open and all this sort of stuff. So I think sometimes it's just going in there and actually turning around and saying, well, you're part of something, but how you integrate yourself into that? So for me, it was just the excitement of going into a, a country like South Africa, which the sport, rugby was just the number one sport. Mm. See, being how I'm integrating, how I was integrating myself and how the, they were actually asked me to sort of, can I, can I actually give them some of my information and some of my what they call game sense opportunities, which I can actually share with them because Australian rugby at that stage was... So I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily about sort of moments. I think for me it was just about those opportunities where you had that first embracement of a new culture, a new, a new opportunity, and, and sports certainly gave me that. And obviously living in South Africa, you know, people say it's not the easiest thing to do. Well, I, I found it fantastic. Certainly, um, um, it gave me an, another opportunity to be different in regards to my rugby ability, but certainly I enjoyed my four years. At- so the, for the listeners um, listening in, you were a coach in South Africa or a player? Well, I was doing mentor coaching. So for me, I was coaching coaches. Um, so part of me, I was playing for the Natal Sharks, but uh, I also had a role where I was going around mentoring coaches. I think the key to mentoring coaches is not about what they know. It's, it's about sometimes about how they say it. So if you don't have a, if you don't have an experience in a coaching in, in a coaching sort of a role with you with your players and that sort of stuff, sometimes about how you articulate, sometimes about man, uh, your language, sometimes about that. So for me, it wasn't necessarily about what what the game was. For me, it was more about understanding the best out of people because everyone's different. And I think that was a very enjoyable time. And um, I certainly, uh, I think, from my point of view, has made a difference to a lot of people, but also it helped me grow at the same time. What did you learn about leadership from moving from a, a role as a player to in a, a mentor and then into a coaching role? What are the things that you learned? Well, I think at the end of the day, you've got to get, you know, the, the, the key to everything, you've got to get sort of accountability and buy into sort of into the process and into who you, who you want to ask. So for me, leadership's not, not, not necessarily very standing up on a pedestal and, and, and looking down and say, okay, let you know, follow me. I think leadership is about, and again, the whole thing about any sport is making an experience and that experience has to be different for everybody, but also has to have the collective. So my whole thing there was about, was obviously planning, but get buy-in from the players. I had a management style where I split the, the, the playing group into uh, four groups and I had one leader from each group. And all I did is I, t- I spoke to that leader and they went away and actually dealed, deal with their group and their group might do something on, you know, how are we going to conduct ourselves off the pitch or how are we going to do, you know, attack and rugby. So I think getting the buy-in is sometimes not about talking to the collective. It's about things like that, where you're chatting to one person, giving them the opportunity to go back to their peers. And, uh, you know, it's just an interesting way how to get an outcome. 
Very nice. Nicely put. And, and you lived in more than just Australia and South Africa. Tell us about some of the other countries that you played rugby and did coaching, mentoring, worked in. Yeah, well, ended up in the UK for a couple of years. Uh, had a role there with a big club called uh, Harlequins. It was in that book, you're the guys. Uh, middle of Twickenham's not my world. I mean, coming from an island, the middle of Twickenham's probably the you know complete opposite of what I was used to. So <laughs> no beaches there. So that wasn't too good. But uh, I ended up going to a club called Worcester, which is out in the bush. And really had a great time there and uh, stuff. But I decided to do something a bit different after the UK and I actually worked in the West Indies for two years. Right, so, right on the beach? Yeah. So I actually uh, coached Bermuda in the, in the Caribbean Championships down in the Cayman Islands and then went and lived in Trinidad and Tobago for uh, a year or two and then had a bit of a stint in Cuba. So I think the game, you know, people realise that the game's all over the world. And uh, when, I can, when I took someone like Trinidad and Tobago, the Commonwealth Games of Sevens, it's people outside of Australia need to understand that the game is very big. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. What did you learn about working across different cultures? It's not just a language barrier, right, but it's how people deal with stuff. Sometimes people will look like us and sound like us. Uh, I've got a lot of American friends who seem very similar to Aussies, but when you talk to them, their culture is very, very different to ours. What were the biggest takeaways that you learned from coaching across different cultures? Well, I think there's just two white lines, which is the rugby. I think that's the white lines. It simplifies it for you a bit, huh? Well, it's, you know, that's it. It's a game. But I think what it is is when you're um, outside the lines, it's all about the people who influence that world. I think for me, it's knowing all the people who are going to touch base with the game, more importantly, but also all, who the influences are, and just making sure everyone's in their allotted areas and not getting ahead of the game. But certainly I think what we need to do is just each... Each week is turning around and saying, well, whatever's happened, uh, we have to keep moving on. But I think also having the support there. So I think when you go to a place like Trinidad and Tobago, it's very, very, very laid back. You have to really make sure at the end of the day, keep the crossbar a bit high for them. So when we were training for the, the Manchester Games, I, I gave them some interesting training things, which is what you probably related to, some boxing and all sorts of things. So... For me, it was a little bit uh, left field for these guys, but they certainly responded. So I think the key to this is sometimes not necessarily about the language, it's saying uh, applying different ways to get an outcome where, where you are and obviously getting them to buy into that. Yeah, very nice. It's, uh, it's a crossover with the leadership and getting the buy-in from any culture and make, giving ownership to people like that is a very, very effective way of leading teams and making stuff happen. Tell me, you, as, a, as a coach and a mentor in other countries, you must have had to hustle and build networks and meet new people. When was it that you realised you had a, net, a knack for networking and connecting people? Well, I think coming from a small community, I mean, basically, uh, I said hello to everybody. And, uh, and I think when you say hello to anybody because it's touristy, you, sometimes you don't know who they are. And that's stuff because we didn't have TV. But, you know, I was sitting down there, you know, Brian Brown, Rachel Ward and all these people, we didn't know who they were. We, we just, they're on an island. So for us, we, we said hello to anybody. So when I was overseas and that sort of stuff, I was always good at cultivating relationships. And for me, I, I realised, wait a second, let's, you know, I need, I need to nurture those and, and I suppose find out the best way to get them. So for me, I um, now I've got this massive database of people globally. I think that's my IP now. It's the currency of my uh, who I am, getting to keep people in industry or business or sport or whatever it is and getting outcomes. As I was doing the research for the show, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me is that you said that the future of innovation and growth is based around relationships. Can you offer some comments on that? I think the thing about it is if you, if you people can sometimes spend months or 
you know, or weeks or something trying to get the person they want to get it. If you over time have those opportunities, those contacts, whatever it is, I think what it is is, is you know, you're going to get to them very a lot quicker. So for me, I've just been very, very blessed to, you know, I run a rugby business network. So for me, I do that sort of once a quarter, keep people up there obviously speaking about their uniqueness, like, uh, you know, Stuart Mayer, Commander of the Navy, you know, Raylene Castle, you know, CEO of Australian Rugby, all these, all these type of people. So while I'm doing that, obviously, you know, I'm obviously standing at the front and I'm at the forefront there and people know who I am. So I think that it's how the uniqueness of knowing who I am is a bit of a character, but more importantly, I think it's been able to break the ice and say, hey, look, I need to come in. I'd like to come and catch up with you. I think I've got something practically to give to you. If you make it about them, then that's that's where I have no problems about getting the meeting and obviously, and, you know, because the key to all this is, is you've got trust, you can transfer value. Yeah, that's beautifully said. There's value bombs dropping all around here. Thank you for sharing that, mate. It's really well said. Was the transition from rugby and sport into the business world a natural and normal one for you? Was it something that was easy or did you struggle with that? Um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Come back to Australia. I'd sort of been coaching for many years in the system. I think for me it, was a, it's, it is a problem uh, because you know, when you're playing high-level sport, uh, we've got high-level expectations, and uh, there's a lot of people. You know, obviously, uh, people have it in different ways. But I, I've lately known of a lot of guys who actually struggled from it and had mental illness and, and issues. You know, yep. so I think for me, it wasn't. I, I, I wasn't quite sure which company or what I was going to work for. But I think from a point of view of leverage, leveraging my my contacts and stuff, knew that was sort of the currency of who I was, where I put that. I wasn't going quite sure, but certainly from my point of view, I, I dipped the toe a fair bit. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things I could have done better, but that's the learning process. But certainly for me, I have my networks haven't sort of got any less. In fact, they've grown immensely. So, you know, the key is always keeping that value there and obviously then uh, progressing that on to create uh, bigger things. Yeah, very nice. Well, well said. I know that professional sport and the military have a lot of things in common. And when you transition from that, you kind of miss your band of brothers and your band of sisters if you've got those in there as well. And it can be hard because it's not the same esprit de corps that you have in a sports team or in the military as you find in a workplace. So it's a rare thing. Why do you think that modern businesses lack that? I think, you know, now, especially now, I mean, everything's sort of, when you look at loyalty, I mean, loyalty is something now that's probably, it's hard. People struggle because loyalty for me is, is something over time. And I think what when you get loyalty is, is a person that comes into a comes into a role and sort of suffers. If you've got people, loyal people around, they embrace it. And if that person is going to go on that journey with that company or group, you know, how that loyalty is, is is how long they stay there. So I just think it's a, for the younger people now. It's a very fast, it's a very fast world, and you know they want things now and they want things now. So them being patient and tolerant about what they want, this is sometimes it, it's just very challenging for them, and you see them moving around. But so you know, I think. Again, it's the, when you go into any company and that stuff, is understanding what is your uniqueness? What are you going to add to that world? And obviously then turning around and obviously trying to influence the people around you, but more importantly, trying to understand the relationship with you and that change. So it's just an accommodating of, of yourself into a, into a new world and, and then making that a great experience for everybody. I had some incredible experiences playing sport as a kid growing up. And I think a lot of Aussies are fortunate to have those same sporting experiences in great teams with great coaches and great mentors. And just experiencing sport is one really fantastic way to build that band of brothers and sisters and have the esprit de corps. And when I kind of got older, obviously, and, and I ended up in the military, 
I had some incredible mates. So some of the, I'm still mates with these guys, you know, 25 years later, it's incredible that I've still got those types of friendships. And I feel that some of the reason that it doesn't exist in the modern workplace like it should is because workplaces these days are very transitory. And, you know, it's said that a younger person will have five to seven different careers in their lifetime. Do you think that that's got something to do with building closer bonds, closer friendships, closer teams in a workplace? Well, I think going back to your point about, you know, obviously the comrades, you know, the court, a lot of the loyalty of what you got out of the military is very relevant. But, you know, if you mentioned to some of the younger people what's it like being part of the team, well, you know, being part of the team is something you do over a season or do over a year, do over a couple of years. So it's something, you've got to understand the relevance of, of that. It's a journey to be had. And if you're, if it's about me and not we, then that journey is going to be very, very short. Yeah, well, well said, well said. I've tried to foster that esprit de corps in, in my organization, in my company and stuff. And I was talking to somebody earlier today about uh, how my team is displaced. At any one point, I've got between 20 and 30 people working with me, but there's nobody in my office. Um, every now and then there's a meeting that happens in the office with a client or, or maybe somebody that's here in Sydney that I work with, but most of the team is displaced throughout the world. And I use decentralized command really well with intention people understand what needs to be done and these teams come together and work together and i know that bringing people from different cultures together is an interesting uh, interesting activity to happen but i also know that they really like that as well as some novelty factor to that and when they achieve really good outcomes on really detailed and complex projects those things all keep the team closer together and they form bonds, they form tighter friendships. And I think in the modern world, it doesn't really matter if you've got a displaced team like I have or there's a team in the office like that. When people work closely together and they achieve really good things together and in some ways they suffer through a little bit of adversity, that's when it really comes home to the roost. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, you know, you, people have got to have adversity. If you don't have adversity, you, don't, you know, you don't. You got to you got to be challenged, and uh, along that way, you know, you don't want it to be nice all the time because you know you, you get comfortable. When you get comfortable, you're not really making a difference. So I think you know when you have the adversity stuff, you get challenged. Sometimes it's how you respond to that under pressure. Uh, that's the test of your real. That's a, you know people understand your fibre a lot better if you uh, are consistent or you're under pressure. More importantly, as as how you work in a team. So I think it's the, the key key to all this is, again is, is understanding yeah your role and understanding how your role fits into the team and obviously the strategy of that and be very clear on. It. I think there's just so many different places these days that people don't understand their role. And uh, if you don't understand your role, then, then what happens is you feel like uh, you're a passenger on a train going nowhere. And and sadly, you know, you, you, you want to be you want to wake up enthusiastic about the day coming ahead. And you want to you want to wake up and say, well, you look forward to this. And sometimes. To me, I love the challenge of going catching up with a high-level corporate or going there. I love it. But I just treat it as another relationship. It's one of those things where people um, have always got to keep building in the currents that they are, but also I think adversities have got a great, great part to play in all that. Yeah, I think clarity of intention is what you're describing there is a really critical part for team building and helping teams bond together as well. Tell me about your experience as a speaker. What was it like for you and what did you learn out of going and sharing your story in a public forum? If you, if you have a story to tell and you're passionate about it, people feel your passion. And um, I, I think with the island thing and obviously being passionate about mother and she, she died and stuff and obviously leaving the island and stuff and the journey I had and the achievements I had. I think people, people certainly resonate very, very much. They don't understand the circumstance, but geez, they're very respectful of what I've become because obviously 
Well, people look at it saying it's an adverse thing. My mother died, but, mate, she was 21 years bedridden. So for me, you know, that's pretty hard. And uh, at the end of the day, it was, it, it was, it was something where I turned around and said, well, you know, that my reason, like the re- who I am today is because of her. She drives me because of all that resilience. But certainly, I'm What was the feedback like from audiences when you first started to do that and you get in front of an audience and you were sharing your message? What was it like? I think people just said they just they could feel they emotionally connected. Um, I think the key to all this is, is, you know, is telling it like it is, but also sharing some of the stories and experiences and, uh, yeah, why it wasn't so easy and all that sort of stuff. So I think from my point of view, is it's just been true to your word. And, yeah, people, when I call it, most people said, geez, you're very passionate about that. And I, was, and I am. I'm very passionate about the island. I'm very passionate about um, my mother and I think if that comes across, then people, you know, again, are very emotionally connected enough that they're there sort of telling bits and obviously what I've achieved as a consequence. Did you have to be a little bit vulnerable? Mate, the key to anything in the world is to be vulnerable. I think if you if you turn up there and uh, you're speaking and suddenly nearly the tear to your eye, all this sort of stuff, I think at the end of the day people need to, they need to feel your passion, need to see your passion. But I think for me it was, yeah, it certainly took me out of comfort zone a few times, but... I don't know. I just very, very respectful. I can't change what's happened in my life, but certainly I can message it. And uh, what I get out of that is obviously the first time today. So yeah. Well, it's, it takes a it takes quite a bit of courage to get up in front of a, a crowd of people and to share that. So well done and, and congratulations on doing that. You did something else that was pretty amazing and pretty inspiring for me. Tell me about your bike ride. Give us some back, background on that. Well, I had a friend of mine uh, that I taught at uh, Pitwater House and he had a son had uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And um, obviously it's eternal disease. And he said, look, I want to, um, you know, I have a ride every year. I'd love you to come on it. And we had to raise uh, over 10,000. I raised about 25. Wow. And he was a great kid at school. He's, you know, he's a bit like me, had a bit of a troubled youth. But more importantly, he was a good kid. And he turned out a great kid. And uh, now he's, you know, he's obviously... Still dealing with his son, but I rode from, uh, did a bike ride from Adelaide to Melbourne, which was obviously a long way. But for me, it was a fan, it was just like my old rugby days. Another challenge which I just lapped up. I just got onto it, dug in. Every day I got stronger, it became easier, a lot more social. And, uh, yeah, when you're doing 140 Ks a day, um, yeah, it does get to you. But certainly from my point of view, it's getting through the rough times and, uh, you know, coming at the end was, was a fantastic achievement for everybody. Yeah, if the, if you, the listeners uh, listening in here have never done anything like that before, I really encourage that. I was lucky enough when I was in the Navy, I rode my bike from Brisbane to Sydney and also from Melbourne to Adelaide, the opposite direction that you did. Mm-hmm. And it was for the Sir David Martin Foundation. And originally we were was kind of a little bit of a junket, I suppose, and the Navy gets you off the ship and gets you, you go and wear your sailor's uniform in a country town and the girls love it, that type of thing. It's kind of cool. But I can remember it was a slog and riding your push bike for a couple hundred kilometres every day is just bloody hard work. Mm. And just thinking about the kids that the Sir David Martin Foundation looks after and the charity work that they do, it's kind of nothing. You know, the pain that I was experiencing on that bike ride was nothing compared to what they actually did. And it sort of put it all into perspective for me. And it, Towards the end of the first trip, the one from Brisbane to Sydney, it didn't really feel like a junket. And when we decided we're going to do it again from Melbourne to Adelaide, we had the time to do that. We're lucky enough to get on the trip and do that again. That really felt less of a junket and more like, hey, let's go and raise some proper money for this charity and do this for the foundation and and do it right. It was a great way to give back. Was your experience the same? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. I went out and really, really worked my network hard. And obviously, you got, yeah, as I said, 25 grand or thereabouts. But um, I think from my point of view, is being a, being part of another team, there's 36 of 
being part of, you know, you only go as far as the biggest person, being, you know, being all that sort of stuff. All this, I could see all the elements of being part of a team again, but more importantly, I just think every, the challenges of every day getting up and doing it again and again for seven or eight days. I was just, it was fantastic. And when you got to, well, actually, when I got to Melbourne, I didn't want it to stop. <laughs> that's that's the, the sadistic side of you there, still wanting to go ride 150Ks a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, tell me, Adrian, what's happening for you in the next 12 to 18 months, mate? There's a lot going on with the Rugby Network and a lot of stuff happening in business. What are you working on at the moment? Well, I work for a company, I work for a company called Arrival, and Arrival is a technology company based around uh, augmented, augmented reality. We do do some virtual reality. We have an expo uh, this week in uh, Melbourne, and um, that's we've got speakers coming in from, from America and stuff for it. I think, you know, for me, again, if I said I was going to be involved in technology 12 months ago, mate, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't even, you know, comprehend it. But I think from my point of view, again, it just goes back to my networks. Yeah. I can go create value. The currency of the future of business is going to, augmented reality is going to be a a big brand. So, to, you know, to go talking to people like the Big Bash and, you know, some of the companies, it's, they're all aware of what the company, the opportunities are, but we're, what we've got is some pretty smart stuff. So it's really exciting times. And I think, you know, it's all about risk and reward. I think, you know, if you can go out there and put your body on the line for startup and get stuff, and now we're getting the stage where we're getting some really cool stuff happening. The reward down the track is, you know, if you do it well, it can be a big buyout and so happy days. So sitting back in Lord Island and a hammock between two palm trees could be the result. Fantastic. It sounds really exciting. We'd love to revisit that and learn some more about the technology that you're working on there. It certainly is the future, AR, VR, and AI. That's where it's at. So that's a really exciting proposition there. So I'd love to hear more about that down the track. Tell me, as a busy guy, you've got a lot going on. What do you do on a daily basis? What are your daily non-negotiables to keep yourself sharp and focused? Wake well, up at 5 o'clock every morning and go to gym. Yep, you're, an early, you're early to rise like me. I love it. Yeah, how you start the day is important. I go with my wife. Uh, we've got a, a, a fitness first down the road, so we always do that every day. And I think that, yeah, then I, I come home and I, I've got 20 minutes to have a coffee and read the paper on the way home, and then I'm ready to go. So uh, I, I just like it's how you start the day, it's key for me. Um, and when you don't start the day with gym and that stuff, it makes it doesn't make it a great old day. You feel a bit miserable. But um, no, I, I think that's the key is starting it well. And then obviously, uh, you know, riding, riding the day how it comes, good, bad, or indifferent, and then, and then move on to the next. You've got to leave it behind you, don't you, right? You can't look over your shoulder and dwell on what happened yesterday. I start the day early as well, sort of up at 5 o'clock, same thing. I'm not in the gym every day these days. The paratrooper body is a little bit too sore to do that every single day. But there's always some physical activity, either swimming, a little bit of a jog or a walk or, or the gym every day. So I would absolutely echo that. How's your body? How's the rugby body, mate? Does that, does that hold up okay? Oh, mate, I see a Cairo every second week because we've got <laughs> I used to be six foot three, and now I sort of feel like I'm getting shorter. So he sort he sorts me out, but uh, no, it's it's all good. I, look, you you wouldn't change anything in the, in the world, but certainly uh, it'd leave me clean skin regardless. Yeah, I joined the army at 182 centimeters and left at 180 centimeters. I'm not sure where those two centimeters went, but I think yeah, maybe yeah. some compression in my spine from parachuting or something like that. But live to fight another day. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, mate. Where can people find out more about you, and where can they connect with you? Well, obviously, go into my LinkedIn, Adrian Skeggs, um, or you know, I think Arrival is Arrival is uh, obviously www.arival.co. Um, that's sort of where I'm sitting there most of the times. And um, yeah, we've got a rugby, the Rugby Business Network, which is uh, you know people, and that's about networking. It's, it's not about 
you know, rugby or business. I mean, the business people come there are pretty compelling. So if people want to get to those, they've got that website. And, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of moving bits, but certainly from my point of view, um, I'd love to, re- yeah, anyone who wants to reach out, I always acknowledge them. I get a lot of people obviously come on and they, they make, you know, they, they reach out to you on LinkedIn and it's always about them and that's the stuff. So just highly conscious of being, you know, a bit measured about how you chat to people, but certainly, uh, people want to reach out. I'm, I'm more than willing to, uh, have a chat to them and see where we go. Well, fantastic. I'll make sure those links are included in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your story, mate. Well, that's just about all we've got for the Golem podcast today. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, if you open up your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button, that helps us out a whole bunch. And if you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review because that always helps out heaps. Well, that's it for the Golem podcast today. Thanks again, Adrian, for coming on, mate. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye for now, mate. Bye.